MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Parents always have lots of questions for their pediatricians, starting from infancy all the way to the teenage years. So today we're going to be discussing some of the most common questions that I get asked as a pediatrician. And of course, we'd love to hear from you and answer any and all of your questions. Share your comments and questions with us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Parents always have lots of questions for their child's pediatrician, starting from infancy all the way to the teenage years. So today we're going to be discussing some of the most common questions that I get asked as a pediatrician. And of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. We can answer any and all of your questions. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So... Um, We kind of talked about several topics a couple of weeks ago, but there were a few that we didn't get to hit, so I wanted to talk about those a little bit more today, and we'd love to hear your questions and comments, so give us a call if you have any questions. The first thing I was going to talk about, which we kind of talked about a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but didn't get to talk much about, was formulas. I feel like we get tons and tons of questions about formula, um, especially new parents and not even not so new parents, grandparents. Everybody has questions about formula and um, what kind of formula does your baby need to be on? So first and foremost, we we definitely recommend breastfeeding. Uh, you know, that's the AP is really pushing for breastfeeding, but sometimes it's just not always an option for people. And that's okay too. You know, we never want to make moms feel bad for the fact that they can't breastfeed or are unsuccessful with breastfeeding. That's okay. Um, And so if that is the case, which happens often, we have to go to formula. And there are several different kinds of formulas out there. Most all of the formulas are going to be based off a cow's milk protein, um, specifically lactose. Um, and it also, all the formulas also have fat, they ha- like with oils, to help um, the babies grow and uh, nutrition. Most of them, pretty much all of them now, have iron fortified, or iron fortified, so you don't have to worry about any iron supplementations. Breastfed babies, t- we usually do start iron supplementations after a few months, usually around four months of age. But if you're formula-fed, you do not need any iron supplementation. The other thing, uh, breastfed babies, we do now is we supplement with vitamin D. You don't have to do that with formula either. So everything, all the good nutrients and everything like that are packed into the formula already. Most of the general formulas you're going to be able to get over-the-counter, and there are several different brands out there. But for the most part, they're all essentially the same. Like I said, they have the cow's milk protein as well as the fats and the proteins in there for them. 
Most of the time, a lot of people, the first step they want to do is jump to what we call some of our hydrolyzed formulas. These are just pre-digested formulas. So the milk protein that we were talking about, that cow's milk protein that it's based off of, these just have that broken down a little bit further. You know, when babies are first born, just like everything is immature on the baby, their guts are going to be immature, their stomachs, their intestines. So it's going to take them a little while to adjust. Even if they were breastfeeding, it may take them a little while to adjust. But formulas, it definitely tends to make them take a little bit, take them a little while to adjust. So even if they're having some gas and they're a little fussy, most of the time, if you give them some time, their bodies will adjust and they'll do fine. Sometimes kids don't always adjust, and we do have to go to those hydrolyzed formulas that I was talking about so that the protein is already slightly broken down a little bit so that their guts don't have to work as hard for that. Um, So you've probably seen some of those. I would say the most common are going to be the Infamil Genelies or the Similac Sensitive just because those are the two most common uh, formula companies we have out there. So those are probably the common names that you've heard, and that's what these are for. Um, and the, so again, it's hopefully to help some of that fussiness and that irritability that they're having with all the gas to help break down those proteins. Soy formulas. That's another one. A lot, we get a lot of questions about is, you know, they tend to be gassy and fussy. So we're just going to change them to a soy formula. Um, and that's not always a bad thing. It has a different, um, it's based off obviously a different, not the cow's milk protein. It's a different carbohydrate that it uses, and but it doesn't always help that much um especially if there's a true milk allergy so if a kid is having blood in their stools not growing any other problems such as to be related to an actual milk protein allergy soy milk is not going to be a good option for that because there tends to be a lot of cross reactivity even though it's not the same milk protein there tends to be a lot of cross reactivity there So um, for true milk protein allergies, there is an even more broken down protein formula. These are called hypoallergenic formulas. Um, And those are going to be like um, alimentum is probably, you know, the the common one that we use a lot. Um, And then there's some that are even more broken down. But at that point, you need to be seeing your GI doctor that usually pediatrician at that point needs to refer to the GI doctor to help out with that. All right, so today we're talking about common questions for your pediatrician, talking now about infant formula. Um, it's a big topic. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Another question that I always get about formulas is when can I switch to cow's milk? So we do our formula. When can I move them on to just regular whole milk? We do not like to move them into regular whole milk until they get to be one. And there's several reasons for that. Um, I know it's, you know, the formulas are based off the cow's milk protein, but like we talked about earlier, there's so many things and nutrients that are packed into that formula that you can't always get with cow's milk. Um, So the first thing is it lacks iron and it lacks vitamin C. It also um, irritates the lining of the intestines and may, may make them lose a little bit of blood. So therefore, infants that are started on whole milk a little too early may actually develop anemia, particularly iron deficiency anemia. It's actually pretty common in kids that start iron too early. We see it a lot. We also see it a lot in kids, even if they are old enough, but just drink lots of milk, lots of whole milk, even once they turn one. 
So that is a, a definite big concern is the anemia that can happen if you start cow's milk too early. The other thing is they just don't digest it as well. There's also high concentrations of protein and minerals, and that can put some stress on a newborn's kidneys. So hold off on the whole, whole cow's milk until one year's old. If you wanted to do, a lot of questions I get is like almond milk. That's probably fine. Ideally, it would be whole cow's milk just because of the fat toler, uh, fat. Um, in the holes on the cow's milk, but almond milk works just as well. It's got calcium, it's got vitamin D in it as well, and that's totally okay too. Most of our kids that have milk allergies, especially the ones that just have more of a milk intolerance and just get that gas and fussiness, are going to do just fine when you move them to cow's milk when they turn one. Some that have a true milk protein allergy, like we were talking about the blood in their stools, most of them do okay and actually can tr transition over to cow's milk by the time they turn one or within a few months after that. Some do take a little bit longer. Some never are able to. But I would say in, in uh, general, most of them are going to be fine and are eventually going to be on cow's milk at some point in their life and do just fine. So even if they have a pretty significant allergy as a baby, they'll probably do just okay later on in life. Um. Another hot topic I, I hear about a lot is probiotics. You know, um, as, a, as adults, we recommend a lot of our adults and kids and teenagers too, but we just don't have a ton of information about it in babies. Um, probiotics, as most people know, we have a balance of bacteria already in our intestines, good bacteria, bad bacteria, and those probiotics, it helps keep that balance in line um, that can help prevent inflammation and infection in there. Um, seems to be okay for a baby to take it, and there are actually lots of formulas out there, also gas drops that have um, probiotics in them, but we just don't have a ton of information on them yet, but it seems like they're going to be um, okay for the infants to do, but I do get a ton of questions about probiotics um, because it, it, more and more products are carrying those now, and it, it seems to be okay. The other thing that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with formula is reflux. You know, all babies are going to have reflux. They all are going to spit up. You have just their guts are immature, as we've already talked about. Their stomachs are smaller. One of our uh, pediatri old pediatricians used to say, uh, you think about the baby's size of their stomach is about the size of their hand. So especially if you're overfeeding them and giving them too much, it's only got, it's going to come up if it can't fit in the stomach. So babies are going to be prone to reflux in just because of the size of their stomach, their anatomy, but also their muscles aren't very strong. Um, and there's a, a muscle, a sphincter, that helps keep that in the stomach, that wraps around the esophagus and helps keep that in the stomach. So therefore, that muscle is not very strong, so it's not going to be able to keep all that milk down in the stomach as it would as you get older. Babies also don't sit upright like we do as adults. So when you lay down, if anybody's ever suffered from heartburn, you know that laying down makes it 10 times worse. And so babies, therefore, are not sitting up. So that's going to make it a little bit harder for them to keep it in their stomach as well and not come up. So most of the time, so that being said, all babies are going to reflux at some point. It's just the degree of how bad they reflux. Uh, going to get a little bit worse, probably around three, four, five months of age. And then by nine to 12 months, it's usually gone. Uh, we have lots of different things that we can do. We try to start conservative things by keeping them propped upright, burping them really well, 
um, trying to, sometimes you have to limit how much they're taking and just feed them a little more often. And so instead of giving them four ounces at one time every three hours, maybe do two ounces every hour and a half, all of that tends to work. Um, you know, medicines, everybody always asks about medicines for reflux, and they, they don't really take away the reflux because, like I said, babies are just a setup to reflux. Um, but it does help, you know, if, if you've had heartburn out there, you know it's uncomfortable, and sometimes babies can be pretty irritable with that because it does hurt. It's, it it's, makes you not feel good. And so that's what the medicines help with. They help neutralize that acid so it doesn't burn as bad for the babies. The other reason we had worried about reflux is that the baby's not growing because if they're spitting it all up and they're not growing... So that could be a reason to intervene. Putting rice cereal is one of the biggest things people like to do. But we try to do the conservative methods first before we add the rice cereal. There's also some formulas out there that have a little bit thicker when it hits that acid um, in the stomach. The formula thickens up, and that does tend to help with the reflux some, keeps it in the stomach a little bit better. Um, so lots and lots of information about infant formula and reflux. If you have any specific questions, please give us a call. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. Um, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 And we'll be back after the break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, professor, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we're talking about common questions for your pediatrician. Um, this includes all the way from being a little bitty baby all the way to the teenage years, and even as adults, if you have any of those as well, we're here to answer any of your questions. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send us a call at m- kids at mpbonline.org. So we talked earlier about infant formula and reflux. If you have any questions, please give us a call. I was going to talk a little more about discipline and potty training. I feel like those are always questions that parents have. And um, if, if we have any tips, you know, every kid is different. Um, and you can read all the books and you can try out all the different methods. It may or may not work for your child. You've got to figure out. The biggest thing is you've got to realize is you have to figure out what works best for your child. What you read in the book, what your friend did, what your mom did may not be what's appropriate for your child. So the biggest thing is that you have to figure out what works best for your child. And don't get frustrated if your method does not work. 
Um, so for discipline, some things that can help, some tips that we have, especially for those terrible twos and toddlers, that seems to be some of the hardest times is the toddler years, two and three years old. And then again, as they become teenagers, those are probably going to be two of our biggest times that discipline becomes an issue. Um, for both toddlers and for teenagers, positive reinforcement tends to work really well. Kids love to be praised. Um, even your teenagers who act like they don't like you as parents, they still love to receive praise from you. It still means a lot to them. So positive reinforcement is going to be the biggest thing. Kids respond a lot better to positive reinforcement than they do negative reinforcement. So positive reinforcement, what we mean by that is praising them when they do something right, especially if they do something right and you didn't have to prompt them to do it right. But even if you had to prompt them and encourage them to do the right thing, they love the positive reinforcements. So praise them when they do what they're supposed to do, and they're more likely to repeat that habit if you do that. Um, giving your child consequences is not a bad thing either, you know. So uh, if not consequences in relation to the to the uh, situation. So say, you know, if they're holding something, they put piled something up on a tray and you tell them that they need to put that down, that's too much, and they don't, it's okay to let them drop it and see what happens when they're not following through with what you ask them to do. Um, as long as it's not in danger, it's, it's okay to let the consequences happen. Uh, I don't recommend telling your child not to touch a hot stove and then letting them touch the hot stove and burn their finger. But if it's within reason and your child is not going to be in danger, it's okay to let them see the consequences of their actions. Um, you can also create consequences too. You know, like if you don't pick up your toys, uh, then we're going to be done with toys for the day things like that, it's okay to do create some consequences for the children. Timeouts work really well for kids, especially ages two to five. After that, eh, maybe not work as the best, um, but timeouts are really good. Um, it's good to have a designated spot for the timeout, um, to not just stop you know, in the playroom, have a certain area where they're going to go for timeout. Um, and everybody always likes to know what the time frame would be for how long they should stay in timeout. We usually say about one minute for each year and age they are. So for your two-year-old, you're not going to put them in timeout for 10 minutes. Number one, they're not going to really understand and they're going to lose interest after a while. But two, they don't need to be in timeout for that long and away from you. So usually about one minute for every year and age. So for a two-year-old, about two minutes, three-year-old, three minutes, four-year-old, four minutes, etc. Um, the other thing, especially as they get older, is withholding privileges. So most all kids have iPads now or get on the computer or, um, you know, screen time, watching TV for an hour or two a day. These are really easy things that you can take away um, from the child. You know, um, we don't want to take away anything that your child may need, like food um, or anything like that. But little unnecessary um, privileges that they get, like an iPad or watching a movie, things like that. That helps. That usually works well for the child. And that same thing for teenagers. You know, teenagers also work really well when you have, when you take away privileges for them. Um, the other thing that uh, we always try to tell our parents about is kids like attention. Like we talked about earlier, positive reinforcement. They love the attention. They love the praise. But they also just want the attention. And that may be negative attention. So when a kid falls out and pitches a fit and you 
go to fuss at them, they're still getting their attention. They're still getting their way by getting you to pay attention to them. So even though that's negative attention, they're still reaching, they're still getting their goal, and that's by getting you to pay attention to them. So it's okay to ignore them when they are pitching their fit, um, as long as they're not putting themselves in harm's way. So as long as they're not pitching a fit in the kitchen and there's knives and different things out on the table that they could harm themselves with, as long as they're not banging their head against the wall or the floor or anything like that, it's okay to just walk away and let them ignore it. And you'll notice a lot of times if your two-year-old's pitching a fit and you walk away, They'll quit and they'll pick, they'll get up off the floor and follow you into the next room because they didn't get the attention that they were seeking. Um, so it's it's okay to ignore them when they are acting out like that. So again, you know, discipline is just kind of what you feel works best for you. We'd love to hear any of your questions or any comments. If you have any tips that you did that you found worked really well with your child, we'd love for you to share them with us. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So another thing that kind of a little bit goes hand in hand with discipline is potty training. Again, every kid's different. You're going to have to figure out what works best for your kid. Um, but a little, a few little tips about potty training. So most kids are not even going to be physiologically ready. So that means that their body is not ready to be potty trained. They can't hold their urine. They can't hold their stools um, until they're about 18 months old. The other thing is you really want your child to be able to be physically ready, too. So you want them to be able to, one, walk to the bathroom, to be able to take off their underwear, or else they can't, if you don't, if they're not able to do that, then potty training is going to be really hard and probably going to be unsuccessful because they're not going to be able to complete it. Um, so a lot of that doesn't really start till around two years old, um, especially um, being emotionally ready. Uh, usually doesn't start around two. So while some kids can be ready around 18 months, and I've seen plenty of kids that are potty trained by 18 months old, I would say on average, it's probably not going to be around, it's not going to be until around age two before they're really ready. So I always try to tell parents, don't get frustrated. It's totally fine to go in and start when your kid's 18 months old, trying to potty train them. But don't get frustrated. You know, if they can't, it's okay to wait. Because on average, it's going to be ages two to four that they're going to really succeed with potty training. Some things to look for is, you know, the child needs to have some body awareness and be, re- be able to recognize that they do need to go to the bathroom or that they have wet their diaper. Um, they also, you know, need to be able to stay dry for a while too. So, you know, um, if you're still getting them from their naps and their diapers are soaking wet, they're probably not going to be ready for potty training just yet because their bladder's not ready. Can't, if it can't hold, um, urine during a two hour nap, it's probably, their body's probably not ready to start potty training. So there's just a few things you can do. Kids will also give you some tips. You know, they'll tell you the minute they're ready, they have a desire for cleanliness. So they'll tell you, you know, like my diaper sweat or anything, you know, that their diaper's dirty and that they need to be changed. And that's usually a good sign, too, that the kid's starting to get ready for potty training. Um, there's lots of little boot camp and different things like that out there that have uh, tips and different things that you, different methods you can do for the potty training. Most of them are just, you know, find a good three to four days and just go hardcore, let the child be out of their diaper, 
um, and have regular scheduled potty times. Um, And those work for some people, but they don't always work for everybody. So if you try one of those and you can't, it doesn't, you're unsuccessful, that's okay. That just means it doesn't work for your child. And you have to figure out what works best for them. The biggest things to remember is to stay positive. Again, we've talked about this a couple of times already, but kids love praise. So um, when they do make uh, progress with the potty training, have some prizes for them. Um, Praise them, hug them, show them that they are making some progress. And they're more likely to continue that activity in the progress. The other thing is be consistent. You know, create reasonable expectations and what according to their abilities and their age, and then try to keep the routines as consistent as possible. You know, make sure that they have scheduled bathroom breaks and scheduled potty time. So right when they wake up, right when they, um, after they wake up from their nap, from their nighttime sleep, after they eat, before they go to bed, these are just certain times that you can make sure that they go to the bathroom and any other time you feel like they need to. And then the other thing is stay involved and continue to encourage them to try to go to the bathroom and observe kind of what their habits are. You know, some some reasons that it makes potty training difficult is a lot of times kids don't remember to stop and go to the bathroom. Kids love playing outside or, um, you know, whatever activity that they're doing, whether it's drawing or whatever. Um, and they'll get so into their activity that they may forget to go to the bathroom. So it's important to stay involved and remind them, hey, let's go take a break and let's go potty. Um, some other reasons that you may have a little bit of trouble with potty training is uh, sometimes they don't want to go. Uh, This tends to happen more for bowel movements than it does for urinating. Um, And uh, most of the time that happens after a kid has had a um, traumatic incident. So usually they've had an episode where maybe it hurt them to go to the bathroom. So you can always talk to your pediatricians about how to make, especially kids with constipation, we tend to see this a lot, And that's when you can talk to your doctor about um, different things that you can do to help treat the constipation, which will make potty training a lot easier. Um, And, you know, a lot of kids are scared, too. That's another reason. So just talk to them about their fears and what their fears are and try that positive reinforcement and encouragement and praise. And that will help a lot with trying to figure out why they're having a hard time with it. Um, Again, there's no perfect way. um, And what you did for your first child may not work for your second uh, it may not work for your cousin and what your grandmother did may not work for you. And that's okay. You just got to figure out what works best for you. Uh, we're talking today about different kind of things that, uh, the common questions you get asked for your pediatrician. We'd love to hear any of your questions and comments or, uh, give us a call at one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can give us an, e- send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today, we're continuing our discussion on the common questions for the pediatrician. Uh, we're asking, talking about different things all the way from infancy all the way to the teenage years. We'd love to hear any of your questions and comments if you and things that worked for you. You know, we talked about potty training and discipline. Um, we'd love to hear anything that worked well for you when you were raising your children or things that you found that worked well for um, other kids, especially if you're involved in child care. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So uh, last week, if you tuned in, we talked a lot about sleep um, and important sleep habits in children. Um, a lot of questions that we get in the pediatrics office are about sleep and how to help kids sleep better. But a lot of things, a lot of questions that we get also involve things that happen when kids sleep. So nightmares, night terrors, wetting the bed. Those are all really common things that happen in childhood. So I was going to talk a little bit about that. Um, nightmares. So nightmares, everybody's probably had a nightmare at some point in their life. Um, so they're the scary dreams that we have. Those usually happen um, during the second half of the night when a dream intends to be the most intense. Um, so you may notice that later on throughout the night, kids wake up screaming. So the difference between a nightmare and night terror is that usually with nightmares, the kids wake up. They are crying. They're afraid. They don't want to go back to sleep. Um, and so they wake up screaming. Whereas night terrors, most of the time, the kids don't tend to wake up. They're usually still in their deep sleep when it happens. So when a child has a nightmare, you know, it's okay to, you know, hold them, hug them, reassure them that that you're there, reassure them that what they just experienced was just a dream, and it's okay to leave the light on. Um, And just reassurance is the biggest thing with nightmares. Night terrors, on the other hand, which happen a lot, you know, nightmares can occur from toddlers all the way through adulthood, really. Um, night terrors tend to really only happen in the younger kids, usually toddlers, maybe preschool age and kindergartners. Um, and they tend to happen in the deepest part of sleep, which usually happens soon after you fall asleep. So early in the night. So a lot of times parents will still be awake when their kids have these night terrors. Uh, because the kids will go to sleep around 7 or 8, and these may happen, you know, in the first couple of hours around 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. The kids are going to not necessarily wake up, although they may have their eyes open, but they tend to be kind of glassy-eyed and confused and not really awake like they would be after they had a nightmare. Most of the time they scream. Sometimes they can even shake and be sweaty, breathing hard. Um, Any, you know, anything that you get when you get scared of something. Uh, as I said, they usually aren't awake, um, even if their eyes are open. So they may not really realize who you are and they may get a little kind of scared of you as well, especially if you try to hug them and, you know, uh, talk to them, they may be a little afraid. 
Night terrors tend to occur around the same time as like sleepwalking. So if you've ever experienced uh, someone sleepwalking into your room and you can't really wake them up, they just are kind of glassy-eyed. That's This is about the same thing like a night terror. It happens around the same time in sleep. So a lot of times you can't um, console them because they are still asleep. But it's it's still okay to reassure them, try to calm them down. Um, they, they may get a little scared if you do try to hug them um, as opposed to the nightmares. But it's okay to reassure them. Make sure they can't hurt themselves too, you know, especially if they're a sleepwalker as well when they get their night tears. Um, so just make sure it's a safe environment for them. Most of the time, the kids are going to fall back asleep pretty quickly, usually only last a few minutes. But, it, I mean, it can be long. It can last 30, 45 minutes that they're kind of out of it. But most of the time, it's pretty quick. And as long as you just kind of reassure them, it's okay, get back in the bed. Most of the time, they'll get back in the bed and fall right back asleep. Um, not always, but most of the time, they do. Uh, kids are usually going to outgrow this, especially the night terrors. But as I said, nightmares, you know, tend to occur all the way into adulthood. But the night terrors, most of the time, they're going to grow out of them. They're, unfortunately, there's just not much we can do about them besides the reassurance. Um, and like I said, you know, uh, just providing uh, comfort to your child and keeping them calm when these happen. But there's not much we can do otherwise. Um. The other things that I was going to talk about are some different sleep apnea is one thing that's becoming more and more common. I'm sure some of our adults probably do suffer from sleep apnea, but we're seeing it more and more in kids. So I was going to try to talk about that a little bit more. Give us a call if you can. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpv ring That's one 672 so sleep apnea, like I said, is a very common occurrence in adults. Uh, but the way that it works in kids is a little different than the, um, the pathology behind it in adults. So sleep apnea is not just snoring. That's what a lot of people um, think of when they think of sleep apnea. And that usually is a very common symptom. But what actually is happening, too, in sleep apnea is that your body quits breathing, Um, and it's telling you, your brain has to signal you to wake up to take a breath. So with adults, we tend to see it more in our obese patients. Um, So they have a lot of that redundant neck tissue, and that's what is causing the obstruction in your airway to quit breathing. In children, that can be the case because we are unfortunately suffering from a lot of childhood obesity. So we are seeing this in our obese children. We also see it with some children with some um, genetic syndromes, especially if you have some craniofacial abnormalities um, or cerebral palsy, different things like that. That can definitely cause the sleep apnea as well, just because of structural things. But I would say the most common reason if we're going to see it in kids is because of enlarged tonsils and adenoids usually. Um, As you know, your tonsils are in the back of your throat and your adenoids are kind of even further behind there. Um, And that can be large in some children. And that can cause the obstruction of the airway. Um, So the most common thing that you'll see is snoring. And then if you tell the parents to like really watch them, they'll notice that they do tend to quit breathing and then will kind of gasp for air. But the problems with sleep apnea is, I mean, that's definitely concerning, but the, because we do have people that actually quit breathing at night um, 
co- completely, but most of the time your brain's going to tell you to start breathing. The problems with sleep apnea is what happens as a result of this. So as I said, you quit breathing, so your brain is, const- is having to wake you up and tell you to breathe. Now, while you might not wake up, because most people with sleep apnea have this numerous times all throughout the night, so you're not actually waking up, but your brain is turning on. And like we talked about last week, you know, sleep is important because your brain needs rest. So your brain is never resting when you go to bed and you have sleep apnea. So during the daytime, you're going to be really tired. Um, So tired that sometimes, especially our adults, they'll even fall asleep at a stoplight while they're just waiting on the light to change. Um, With kids, though, we see them falling asleep during class. And this can be a big problem. A lot. It also leads to behavioral problems mostly because they're tired, so they're going to be very irritable. Um, but it can also have problems with your attention. You know, when you're tired, you can't. it's hard to, for you to pay attention to things. So we'll have a lot of kids that come in for concerns for ADHD because they can't pay attention in class and their teachers are worried about them. But when you talk to the parents and you get a better history, you find out that they snore and you look in there and their tonsils are really large. And so they probably have sleep apnea. And a lot of times we can, when we fix the sleep apnea, uh, their attention problems go away. But the biggest thing is they're just so tired during the day, which leads to lots of the problems. So what we do when we suspect sleep apnea, we do a sleep, we order a sleep study. Um, this is usually done by pulmonologists, especially in the adult world, but also in the pediatric world. The pediatric pulmonologists do a lot of these. Our ENT doctors also do a lot because our ENT doctors, especially for our kids, are the ones that help us fix sleep apnea by taking out the tonsils and the adenoids. So um, a lot of our ENT doctors do the sleep studies. And then there are just some pediatricians and internal medicine doctors that are trained in sleep study. So basically what you do is you go spend the night somewhere. They hook you up to several different sensors. They're going to be watching your breathing They're going to be watching your oxygen levels throughout the night. And they also have leads on your brain. If anybody's ever had an EEG, that's kind of what they're doing. It's similar to that. You'll have things in your head where they watch your brain waves. Because we know there's certain brain waves that you have during the different sleep cycles, so they're able to see that as well. And so they watch you overnight. They monitor monitor all those different... um, different things we talked about. And based off of that, they're able to tell how many times, how many apneic episodes you have. Um, And based off of that, how many apneic episodes you have, then they can um, determine if you truly have sleep apnea. Now, like I was saying, obstructive sleep apnea is going to be the most common, um, whether it be for redundant neck tissue, whether it be enlarged tonsils and adenoids. But there's also central sleep apnea. Um, which is where you don't get the signals to breathe from your brain. This is not very common at all. Um, Most of the time we're going to see sleep apnea. Um, So they can also tell what can kind of help differentiate what kind of sleep apnea you're having based off of these studies. Um, What we do for sleep apnea. So if we feel like the reason they're having sleep apnea is because they have large tonsils and adenoids, then we send them to the ENT doctors for evaluation, as I was saying, because the treatment is taking out the tonsils and adenoids. Um, Most of the time, that makes all the difference in the world, and the kids don't have to have any other treatment. Once they get their tonsils and adenoids out, you see them back in follow-up, and the mom says, well, they've quit snoring, they're acting so much better, they're not as tired during the day, and we've treated it. There are some times um, 
with children that even after their tonsils and adenoids, and especially our obese children, they end up needing a CPAP. Um, And I feel like most people have heard of a CPAP, but what CPAP stands for is Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. So basically, it's a machine that you wear on your face. It's a little, I mean, excuse me, it's a machine hooked up to a mask that you put on your face that will deliver steady air pressure through the nose or the mouth, depending on what kind of mask you have. And it helps them breathe throughout the night. So it's constantly sending that air pressure down um, so they never quit breathing. So they're not having to wake up, their brain's not having to wake them up to breathe throughout the night. Um, CPAP is how we treat most of our adults and most of our teenagers because at that point it's usually not your tonsils and adenoids. So you probably know some people that use a CPAP machine, but we do have some children that end up having to be on it. Like I was saying earlier, you know, some kids with genetic um, syndromes, like Down syndrome in particular, they tend to have the way that their mouth is um, structured and their oral cavity is structured, that they tend to um, have obstruction. Um, obstructive sleep apnea. And so a lot of times we'll see kids that have those end up having to be on a CPAP mask. Um, And that doesn't necessarily, you know, is not a bad thing. Um, And especially if it helps with the symptoms that they have throughout the day, um, a CPAP mask is usually pretty manageable for kids. It's pretty, most of the, they have all kinds of masks out there that are usually pretty comfortable and um, you can still get a good night's sleep with them on. We're talking today about common questions for your pediatrician. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. Please give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And we'll continue our discussions after the break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today, we've been talking about common questions for your pediatrician. We've talked about a variety of different topics, and we'd love to hear any of your questions and comments. Um, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. We did have a question that was sent to us. Um, someone asked us, what do you do about kids when they fight or bully? Um, or I guess we can also turn it around and if um, kids are being bullied, how you handle that, um, which is also a pretty common question we get asked a lot uh, in clinic because unfortunately we're seeing more and more of that. So that's just it's kind of a hard question um, and it's going to be a hard issue to deal with as a parent, especially if your kid is the one that is getting caught for stealing or fighting in school. 
um, a lot of times uh, we need to get to the root of the problem and why they're having these, how they're having these feelings. Um, making sure that they don't have anything going on at school that's um, upsetting them to lead to these kind of behaviors. Um, Anything going on at the house or with their friends and family. A lot of times if you talk to the kids, um, stress or different things, issues going on at the house. Um, And then, you know, it's always good to counseling is a great thing. I'm a big believer in counseling. So if you're having a lot of issues with your child, talk to your pediatrician and their behaviors. Talk to their pediatricians about it. Behavioral counseling is a wonderful thing. Um, Unfortunately, we it's very it's we don't have a ton of providers that do that. Um, but the ones that we do, that we have, are wonderful. There's lots of different services out there, and your pediatrician can help you with that. Um, but behavioral counseling is wonderful, and that goes for our toddlers. Um, we have, I've sent two- and three-year-olds to behavioral uh, therapy before, all the way to teenagers and even adults, uh, but definitely uh, toddlers through teenagers. We have lots of teenagers in counseling um, and behavioral therapy. And so uh, that I think that's probably one of the biggest things um, that we would like to do. And, you know, there are some times that teenagers, especially, usually not our younger children, uh, but if they are c- continue to have very aggressive behaviors despite therapy, then, you know, sometimes they do end up having to get on medications to help with that. That's not very common. Um, most of the time, kids respond really well to counseling, and that's something that you can talk to your pediatrician about if you need to see a specialist when it comes to that. Um, there are specialists out there that deal with that for children. Um, bullying is a big topic as well, and that was another thing that they brought up in their question um, If you feel like your child's being bullied, uh, the first thing to do is to always go, uh, one, get more of the story because a lot of time and try to figure out what's going on. But talk to the um, administrators at the school. Uh, That's going to be the biggest thing for you to do. They they have lots of different options. Uh, Again, there's counselors at the school um, that help with that. Uh, As you can tell, I'm a big believer in counseling. Um, It it makes a huge difference when it comes to behavioral um, issues. But counselors at the school can help with that. Um, And then the administrators can help figure out what's exactly going on at school um, and how to best handle that situation, whether that be make adjustments in the classroom or their schedules for the day, what needs to be done for that. A lot of times kids are not going to want to talk about it and they're not going to tell you a lot of information. And again, that's when trying to find a counselor or somebody that they feel comfortable confiding in so that you can tell the right authorities and make the right adjustments at school or day care or wherever the bullying is in the locker room, wherever the bullying is happening. Um, But the biggest thing to do is to to know about bullying is to be in communication with their children Um, because, again, they don't want to talk about it. Um, So trying to have an open relationship with your child, especially teenagers, because teenagers, um, if you've raised children, you know teenagers like to be pretty standoffish. Um, and don't like to talk a lot. So trying to have that open relationship with them um, so that you can know and have can um, find those signs that they may be experiencing something else going on at school so you can figure out what's going on if they are being bullied. Um, but bullying is definitely a tough topic to talk about. Um, so, you know, so I would definitely talk, get your child in with your pediatrician so they can talk to you about different options that you can do. Um, one last thing I was going to try to get to you real fast because it, it's uh, a question that a lot of people don't 
uh, ask, but definitely need to be informed on is car seats. So the AAP has come out with some, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, that's the AAP, has come out with some new recommendations uh, that all kids under two years old need to be in the back seat and facing the rear. So they need to be facing the back when they are in their car seats. Um, all the way to two. You know, most people turn them around when they turn one. Um, but really, we know that studies have shown that it's much safer for children to be facing the rear until they're two. And honestly, if your child is okay with staying turned around, the longer you can keep them turned around, the safer it is for them. Um, one of my friends didn't turn her child around until she was almost four years old. Actually, it was right before her four-year-old birthday. But the child was very comfortable in the rear facing, and she knew that that was the safest for her child. And her child didn't think anything of it because she never knew anything different than facing the front. Um, most of our rear-facing car seats now go up to almost 40 pounds um, because a lot of them are convertible where you can do rear and forward facing with it. Uh, so, you know, and the, one of the biggest things that the parents always say is, well, what about their legs? They're all going to be squished up. But really, the, kid, the kids do just fine with it. It really doesn't bother them. It kind of bothers the parents more than it actually bothers the kids because they're usually not too uncomfortable with it. Um, so at two, you can turn them around, but like I said, the longer you can keep them facing the back, the safer it is for them. Once you turn them around, you know, they still need to be in a car seat at two. Um, most of the time, kids aren't going to be able to move to a booster seat until they're at least 40 pounds, um, and that's usually sometime around ages four, five, something like that, um, most of the time as they get older. The longer you can keep them in a car seat with a harness, within the, by harness, I mean that it, the shoulder straps actually come down from the car seat and it go over their shoulders, not a, like a normal seat belt the safer it is for them. But when you do transition them to a booster, we always like to do the, um, there's two different kinds of boosters that you can have actually. So there's the, um, the one with the high back and then there's one without a backless. A lot of them transition where you can actually take the high back off and become a backless one. But we always want you to start with the high back. Most of these aren't gonna have this uh, harness strap, so you are gonna sh use the shoulder straps like you normally would. The biggest thing about a booster is we want to make sure that the kid is sitting upright enough that the seat belt hits them like it would hit us as an adult. And then you can always transition them after the booster to just a normal seat, but they need to be sitting in the back seat till they're 13 years old. So we've talked about a lot of different topics. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email, and we can touch base with that next week. Um, thanks for listening to us. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and it's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by our producer, Jay White. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. Think Radio.